Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's podcast. There's no special announcements or anything like that, so I'm just going to jump right into the posts. Terra Onion has recently released a firmware update for the Mode Optical Drive emulator that allows for save game files to be backed up and restored for the Sega Saturn. And there's actually two ways that you could go about doing it. The first way is by just going right into the Modes menu and backing up and restoring the entire contents of the RAM to a file. So I think a a good reason to do this would probably be for people that don't have the FRAM mod done and just want to make sure that every time they're done playing a game that has a save game file, you could just reset to menu and then back up your entire RAM just to make sure that the next time you turn on your Saturn, the battery doesn't go dead. Or if it does, swap out the battery, restore your saves, and you're done. Um, The next way of going about it is by backing up and restoring individual save games to each individual file. And this is actually done uh, because Terra Onion forked the Saturn save game copier software, um, the same software that was just updated to take advantage of save game backup and restore for the Satiator. And you're able to basically just launch that as if it were a Saturn game and then use that to back up and restore any of the files. So that's obviously a good thing if you specifically want to back up one game that's important to you or you want to transfer from console to console or to emulation or whatever else that you want to do. Uh, Also, um, they've just announced and shown pictures of their adapter that allows you to install the mode into a PlayStation 1. And uh, it's essentially the same exact installation as an X station. So as I said, when I talked about these devices in the past, it's my recommendation that you let your wallet decide which one you get. So if you had planned on using some kind of hard drive and SATA solution, whether it's an SSD or spinning hard drive, if you planned on getting one of those and loading up the entire PlayStation ROM library on it, it's probably cheaper overall to get yourself a mode and that versus getting the X station and a one terabyte or higher, I guess, micro SD card. Um, However, if you're the type that just says, hey, I'm going to put my 10 favorite games on and then just copy games as needed, it's far cheaper to get an X station and a 64 gigabyte uh, micro SD card and just kind of go from there. So they're both good devices. Um, I I think they perform pretty similarly. Uh, At least I haven't gone through extensive testing, but they both seem like solid devices. Although, of course, you know, I haven't tested one on the PlayStation yet, just as a whole. Uh, You know, they both seem like good devices, and I don't think there would be a wrong choice. I just think it really is whatever fits people's setup the best. So... You know, it's always kind of interesting to see when when product pricing comes out because there isn't just the fanboy wars and stuff like that. There are those people that usually who will never admit it, but think that because something's more expensive, it's better. And in this case, that's 100% relative. You know, are you using a 
one terabyte um, micro SD or a one terabyte SSD, then one certainly would feel better to you, or at least better to your wallet. But either way, awesome products altogether. And uh, I'm really happy that uh, people are taking time to implement features like save game backup restore into these things. The arcade cores for Gauntlet 1 and 2 have just been added to the list of games that the Mr. FPGA project now supports, and I wanted to talk about that for a second, not just to celebrate the work of the developer that ported these over, but also just to kind of give a shout out to everybody that works on the Mr. project, because there are so many awesome updates coming in probably a weekly basis about at this point. And we try to keep up with all of the bigger ones, but there's a lot of smaller ones that are pretty cool and sometimes pretty niche. So only one group might be excited by it. Not so much all of retro gaming, but I wanted to take a moment just to give a shout out to everybody that works on it. Um, and just to remind everybody that a lot of the developers that allow these things to be used uh, by all of us are, are people that have Patreon accounts. And I know there's always mixed feelings about that, but I have never wavered on my very strong opinion that if you're a fan of somebody's work um, and you have the ability to throw a dollar or so a month, then that's nothing but positivity right there. I still can't believe that some people disagree about that, but hey, you know, not everybody can agree on everything. But any retro gaming fans would probably agree that having these things available to us are all really awesome. And there are some amazing people working on some pretty incredible cores coming up. Um, we'll try to cover the bigger ones every time they hit, but the little ones are important too. And sometimes these are stepping stones for other things. So while I did absolutely love playing Gauntlet in the arcades as a little kid, I never got very far both because I was a little kid and because, you know, a lot of these were just quarter eaters. But I do distinctly remember playing this game in the arcade as a kid and enjoying it. So to see them both pop up on Mr. definitely put a smile on my face and made me want to write a post about it, as well as give a shout out to everybody involved in the project here. So thank you to everybody that works on the Mr. Team. Uh, and we'll we'll try our best to keep up with all the bigger announcements. And anybody that wants to be up to date on everything, I definitely suggest checking on the uh, checking out some of the Patreon accounts of some of the developers because they usually post on a pretty regular basis, and you get to be kept in the loop, like in real time, of the things that are going on. I've been getting a ton of questions lately about the upcoming OSSC Pro, and when Marcus posted a picture of the latest prototype hardware, I figured now is probably a good time for a follow-up post, just to kind of keep everybody in the loop of its status. Just a reminder, if anybody wants any like by-the-minute update information, you could check out the Shmups thread, but um, if there's a big update, we'll always post about it. So if you hear nothing, that means that there's no major thing to talk about. Um, it does seem like all of the features that Marcus had planned on, planned on adding will be available. It just might not be available right on launch date, which anybody that remembers how the original open source scan converter was released, um, you know, there was some anticipation of upcoming features, which were all implemented, but the amount of features that Marcus added afterwards that no one really thought was possible is just overwhelmingly awesome. So uh, I'm pretty confident that at some point, anybody with a little patience could just wait and and the features needed that were within means of the hardware could probably be implemented. Um, about any other updates, though, I think the most important thing I have to get across is curbing your expectations for what this device is. And it's very much a pro option. Um, you know, it's not a replacement for the OSSE. It's not a cheap beginner tool. It's going to be something that either people who want or depending on your setup need to do specific things 
but it's not going to be a cheap device. And in fact, the price's estimate is going to be between 350 and 550 for the final cost, which depends on so many different factors, which is why I never really talked about it before. I never wanted to make a post that says, you know, OSSC Pro announced at between 350 and 550 because that's unfair to everybody. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, the hardware itself is incredibly expensive. Plus, in order to make something like this is really expensive. So to get everything figured out, um, you know, I think they're going to have to do a lot more work to, to kind of plan exactly how many are going to be available. So I would just call the price expensive for now, not put a number on it and just expense it, expect it to be on the higher side. And, um, you know, hopefully they'll be able to get it down a little bit lower. As far as a release date, it's still planned sometime in 2021. Um, I don't know anything specific. I haven't talked to Marcus recently about the, about this version of the Pro, but something this complicated is probably going to have another hardware revision. You could be the best dev that has ever lived and still get a prototype and find out, oh, this might be a little bit better if I swapped this. Let me try it this way. So I would definitely imagine one more prototype rev before it goes to production. But who knows? Marcus is way smarter than I am. So <laughs> maybe he pulled it off. Um, also, uh, composite and S-video supposedly will be handled one of two ways or both. Um, one way that it could be done is composite video goes right into one of the RCA jacks for component video, and S-Video could be done using a standard splitter that goes from S-Video to Y and C. Uh, you could get these as BNC, as RCA, so uh, a cheap one for RCA going into the other two uh, component video ports would probably be a good way to go about that. Um, and there are some advantages and disadvantages to that. The other way is how it was originally announced by selling an add-on daughter board for it that plugs into the side. And if that would be done, you could add extra chips on there that help clean the signal up a little bit better. It would obviously be more expensive than free, already uh, built right into the software. So I don't know if Marcus is 100% yet on which way it could be done, but um, either way is cool in my opinion, and I think both is probably if possible, probably the best. That way everybody has the choice. Um, as Everything else, um, as far as I know, has been the same since the original announcement. I have that post linked here if, uh, if you want to check out uh, the one that Smoke Monster wrote when it was first released. The only other thing to mention is there are prototype boards out there now that attach on to different devices, such as the DE10 Nano, the same device as the Mister, for people that want to test some of these features. Uh, I actually have one. Uh, we have the parts ordered. It's just that we got to wait for the parts to come in and then assemble them and everything. But um, I, I think it would be interesting to see how this thing performs and some of the features. But I don't think it's something that people should run out and make themselves. I think it's just my opinion. I could be wrong. And, you know, depending on your use case, you could think of it differently. But I think this is really for uh, for developers that wanted to work on it to start getting used to the software, as well as testers just to get ready and say, you know, hey, I, you know, I tried my normal 20 things that I always try. Here's my results and just start giving feedback before the final prototypes. Um so you know, you'll definitely see pictures of those out there floating around. Uh, I just wanted to make sure to curb expectations. That's not something that I would recommend people just go out and do and buy a DE10 Nano for. I think in almost all cases, I would just wait for the final version and pick that up when it's ready. So, And also, it's even pretty expensive to make those add-on boards too because you need a bunch of parts for it that are all quite pricey. So even just the add-on board to the DE10 is 
probably in cost more expensive than just the OSSC. So I just wanted to make sure to, uh, you know, to explain the price a little bit more, because I think when some people saw it, they just kind of didn't understand what they were getting and were just a little put off by the price. But I mean, it's not going to be for everybody, and I don't think it's supposed to be for everybody. There's a lot of really great choices now, and the Pro is going to be one that a lot of people are going to love, and a lot of people just aren't going to need. So I'll keep everybody posted as time goes by, and uh, the next time there's a big update, you'll definitely hear it here. The website Retro Daily has just opened pre-orders on protective plastic cases that fit Genesis, Famicom, or MSX cartridges, and the price is $15 for a 10-pack. Shipping is $9 per pack, though. So if you're getting 10, the total price is 24, which seems like a pretty darn good deal to me. But what if you have a big collection that you want to make sure stays out of the dust? Then, you know, what are you spending $90 just on shipping? So I think that's uh, some collectors were a little annoyed at that. But hopefully the store that's doing them will figure out a way to bundle shipping and keep costs down. But either way, if you have a large collection and you want to keep them safe from dust and all that other stuff, it seems to be a decent option. I have not seen them myself, but the person who made those really awesome PC Engine clear cases seems to vouch for them, uh, which is good enough for me, especially for $24 for 10 cases. I'm definitely going to take that risk and hope that they're decent enough. So uh, if you are interested in them, the pre-orders will be open until December 10th. Uh, And I would definitely, if you were looking to buy a large amount of them, email the store and see. Uh, Maybe there's something they could do, you know, even if it's just you get a couple people sort of in your neighborhood to all chip in and order one big box from them and then somebody takes the time to divvy them out. There's got to be some way to get shipping down for larger orders. At least I think shipping prices are insane lately. So who knows? Maybe this is the best that really can be done. But either way, they look neat. So if you have either Genesis, Famicom or MSX loose cartridges that you want to protect, take a look at the post. Production versions of the HyperFlash 32 ROM car are now starting to ship, and I was able to get one for review, and I really loved it. So the short overview, you know, please watch the the full review if you want the details, but the short overview is this is a Virtual Boy ROM cart that sets up just as easily as every EverDrive, you know, format your microSD FAT32, dump a zip file on it, add your ROMs, and you're done. However, you select your game using the e-ink screen and the capacitive touch buttons. And while normally capacitive touch buttons drive me kind of crazy, I actually think it's the perfect fit for this ROM cart because the buttons react about as fast as the screen. So as soon as you get used to the timing of the buttons, it matches the refresh rate of the very slow e-ink screen. And then navigation, while not speedy, is, is pretty reasonable. Um, also, the Virtual Boy's full library of games and homebrew don't amount to that much, so scrolling through every single game in a device like this doesn't take too long. I don't know if I would like it for Genesis or Super Nintendo, because you're sorting through hundreds and hundreds of games, but I found it totally tolerable for the Virtual Boy. Um, once you select your game, it takes between 30 seconds and two minutes to load, depending on the size of the game. Most are under a minute. And then after it's done loading... Uh, the ROM cart becomes the game that you've loaded. So uh, there's some community-made fan art as their uh, thumbnails, if you will, that stays on the cart even after it's not powered. Uh, and I don't, I hopefully I was uh, pretty clear about that in the video. You got to plug USB power into it to select your, and load your game, 
and then that's it. And you unplug it. You don't need power to use it. You just treat it like a Virtual Boy game at that point. Um, it does keep your save game files. It is compatible with Hyper Fighting, um, and you don't need any PC software to run it. Thunderstruck did a great GUI for it if you want to use that to add ROMs and change artwork. But I do love the fact that all that's needed is extracting a zip file, which is really good for longevity. That means you don't have to worry 20 years from now if you still want to play your Virtual Boy. You don't have to worry that the software is compatible with whatever OS you're using. You just as long as you have access to a micro SD card, you could, you know, set this up again. So overall, I really loved it. Um, you know, I, I guess I, I, it feels weird that I have to be clear about this these days, but I paid full price for mine. Um, and, you know, I, there are no kickbacks. I really did love it as much as I talked about. I think a lot of people saw the video and thought, oh, that's a lot of work just to play my games. I don't want to deal with any of that. And that's a totally fair opinion. There's nothing wrong with that. I just think in this particular scenario, you know, not a lot of ROMs to go through. It's already a unique and kind of a niche, uh, I don't even know what you would call it, console group of people working on it. It's just really a, a niche item. And having a unique and different experience for it, I really felt it was just awesome. Uh, and I, I'm really glad I purchased it. So if you want to buy yours, check out Kevin's website. I think at, at least at this time, he's still doing orders manually. So you got to email him, he adds you to a list, and then, you know, keeps you in the loop of when payments required, when they're shipping, etc. Uh, it's not the most efficient way to do it. But he's really good at keeping track of this stuff. And he's got a history of, of doing pre orders and things this way. Uh, a lot of which I've talked about here on the podcast. So it's certainly, in my opinion, seems like a safe bet. And the first round are already shipping. So it's already a product that exists. So if you're looking to get in on round two, I believe you could just email him and you'd be added to the list. And I do really think that if you own a virtual boy, you should at least check out the video and see if it's for you. Cause I just, I like it. Dan Mons just posted a write-up summarizing a lot of research he's been doing regarding the NES color palette, which is something I've talked about in the past and can get pretty confusing. So I'll give a general overview uh, right here. Dan was nice enough to write, a, I guess I would say, a, a medium write-up for the website. So it's detailed, but it's not super nerdy. I feel like most people that listen to the podcast could probably follow it. And then for any nerds that want to dig deep, uh, you can go right to stickfreaks.com and check out the full in-depth uh, post and details. But this all comes down to the way the original NES and some consoles like the Atari 2600 and a few others generate their color. So pretty much all other consoles of that era, at least the mainstream ones, started out by generating video as RGB. So all of the colors were already defined right from day one. And then to get those other signals, that goes into a chip that mixes the colors together in, uh, in the brightness information, and that's how you get S-Video. And that same chip would also mix all of it together to get composite video, and then there's usually another box on there for RF for consoles that supported that as well. Well, consoles like the NES and the Atari 2600 didn't do that at all. They generated their colors directly in the composite video domain, which left the, uh, the interpretation of the color up to the device that you were using. So that means that if you were using a Sony TV that was brand new, you would be having a slightly different experience than somebody with a totally different brand TV that was, let's say, much older or something like that. And by the time we got to scalers on flat panels and calibrated PVMs for gaming use and all of that stuff, 
people started noticing that the colors were way different. And in fact, I distinctly remember being a kid and seeing PlayChoice 10, the arcade version of the NES, playing Super Mario Brothers 3 and thinking, wow, is this machine broken? Like, this just, this looks really bad. And come to find out that the RGB chips that Nintendo used in their arcade machines used a pretty limited color palette that, and they didn't really do a, in my opinion at least, they didn't really do a good job translating the colors over. So the research that Dan's done, that I believe uh, Risha was always was also working on recently, and Firebrand X had been working on for a long time, was trying to get a more accurate, um, dis- to decipher the NES color pal- palette more accurately for modern use, I guess is the best way to put that. A fumbly way to put that, the best way to put that. So Dan goes into detail about how he was able to actually do this. Um, he referenced a lot of his color calibration stuff that he had talked about in a previous series of videos that I talked about a few months ago on the podcast, um, and basically tied it all together and how he was able to use tools to calibrate his monitor and then run the original or multiple versions of the original NES on this monitor and was able to take some readings uh, using that methodology, which is also kind of funny too, because there were a few different PPU revisions of the NES that outputted slightly different. So even in a setup like this, you could test 10 different NES consoles and have slightly different variations. So he was able to take all of his data um, and really kind of get more information on what would be the most accurate NES color palette. Um, it is also my opinion that uh, anybody out there should, at least with the devices that are able to change palettes, even software emulation could do it now. It's my advice that you just download all of the ones available and see which is your favorite to your eyes. Um, over the years, my favorites have been Smooth from Firebrand X, um, Wavebeam from Naked Arthur, and then just the Sony color palette, the standard Sony one. And I actually switch between them depending on the game I'm playing. The PlayChoice 10 color palette usually looks pretty ugly, in my opinion, except for Contra. It always looked great for that. But, you know, it's just one of these things that while Dan's research, as well as everybody else that has done stuff like this, is is really important for archival stuff and for accuracy of the original. Um, but it's still perfectly okay if you prefer a different color palette. So <laughs> no disrespect to people that did so much hard work and amazing work on this stuff. Uh, just saying the end conclusion is always going to be use whatever's best for your eyes. There really is no right answer as far as what's the best to play with, uh, but it is really awesome that there are people out there that care enough about this stuff to to record and are able to analyze what it actually would have been in the on the original console on the original TVs back in the day. And speaking of Firebrand X, he just uploaded a video titled Finding Proper 4x3 Correction for Vintage Video Games, which goes into detail of what formulas you can use to make sure that all of these classic games are presented in the proper 4x3 aspect ratio and not stretched or not square pixels. And I do think that this is something very important for people taking archival footage or people doing documentaries and and. Basically, any time the point of the video or the point of the capture is an accurate representation of the original game, I think it's absolutely worth the time to go and do this stuff. Uh, I also think it's really awesome when people who have done internal HDMI mods take the time to add this stuff in. So not only do you get the true aspect ratio, but you don't have things like your screen width changing between different resolutions of different games and stuff like that. So... 
it's really important work. It's so important that I um, embedded the video into my video capture page. However, there are scenarios where it's not as important. You know, I would love to see this implemented in upcoming scalers. I would love to see um, this implemented in the analog consoles. I believe pretty much the versions of this are already implemented in the Mister, which is why you can get a good aspect ratio regardless of the original resolution. However, if you're just playing through a scaler, I don't think it's it's something to obsess about as much. And of course, unless it's something that's really important to you. And for me personally, if you go through the RetroTink products, they're already four by three. If you go in the OSSC in generic mode, that's already four by three. However, if you go into the optimal timings modes, and uh, I definitely prefer to play in 5X whenever possible, 5X on an average of 320 resolution game is a little too wide, but it fills up more of the screen on the TV, not so much like it's stretching 4x3 to 16x9, but in many of these games, what you end up with is circles instead of ovals. So while things do seem a little fatter than they should be, it doesn't take away from it, and I think the overall advantage um, really outweigh any of the discrepancies. And same thing with any 256 wide pixel games that are run in 5x by 6x modes. So it's that setting that I talked about um, when I was talking about the OSSC video. I put information in the same post, which I have linked in this post here as well. But what that ends up with is a 256 uh, pixel that's um, a little wider than it should be, but you get a lot of other advantages of it, same as I talked about before, and they really are the best ways that can be played on a TV today, on a flat panel TV. Um, hopefully, upcoming scalers will have totally different ways to do this type of stuff, so aspect ratio won't even be a thing anymore. Um, but I do, I do think that that is the best flat panel experience, unless you need scan lines. That's a whole other conversation altogether. But if you're just playing original consoles, either just use the, the generic modes that these other scalers use and just be happy, or if you go into the OSSC, definitely take advantage of the 5X modes um, and really just kind of just embrace it for what it is. It might not be the most perfect aspect ratio, but you're getting a really, like a very sharp picture, especially if you dial in um, phase and all of that stuff. So overall, if, you know, if you're into video capture, if you're into tweaking and, and really messing with this stuff, definitely check out his video. If not, if you just want to play the game and go from there, then, uh, you know, stick with your generic modes and there's nothing to worry about. You're not doing anything wrong unless you stretch a 4x3 game to 16x9. Then you're wrong. Sega of Japan just posted a video that goes through the history of Sega, uh, all of the different prototype names of their consoles, and I believe it's part of a contest where they test their fans on their Sega history knowledge. However, by far the coolest thing about this video was showing off a prototype of the Venus, which was the project working name for the Nomad. And um, I think it looks great. It looks kind of like a six-button Game Gear but a little better with kind of an odd color scheme to it. I'm sure, you know, knowing Sega, they would have had four different colors out of it. But I just thought it was a, it was really neat to take a look at. And in hindsight, you could see why they went with the design of the Nomad, because it looked like, you know, a different evolution of their products. The styling of it kind of matched where they were going with things. But in hindsight, now, now that I look at the Venus, I think I would rather have that. So who knows? Maybe there are some developers and uh, designers out there that'll be able to look at the picture and kind of figure out a way to make their own 
3D printable Venus case for you to transplant a Game Gear or a Nomad into or something like that. Uh, or heck, even just build it for use with FPGA devices. I think plugging a DE10 Nano into a Venus would be freaking awesome. So <laughs> uh, anybody out there with the ability to do that, go for it. Do not go buy my picture. That is a badly photoshopped <laughs> picture of a screenshot of the video where I tried to Photoshop out the guy's hands. Um, but it, it's really neat. It's a cool piece of history. If you're watching video on, uh, on video now, now, I will show the only footage they showed of it, uh, which is only like 10 seconds. There's barely any footage of it. I, I really wish they had done a video just showing off different angles of it and how it looked just for people to get a sense. But that was it. Just a few quick seconds of the Venus prototype. So I guess it's a neat look into Sega history. Uh, and who knows, maybe somebody will come up with a way for us to make one ourselves nowadays. It looks like one of the main chips in the Capcom arcade platform has been reverse engineered. It's specifically the DL0921 chip, which is on the C board of the CPS-1 and on the A board of the CPS-2. And what this essentially means is that this research can be applied to any project involving the Capcom play system. So whether that's making software emulation more accurate, whether that's adding to FPGA recreations of this, or even parts that could be designed to help revive original arcade hardware. So overall, it's, it's something that's not just awesome bragging rights, but it applies to a lot of different scenarios and, and pretty much any hardware or software development regarding the Capcom play systems. So it's very cool to see. I'm always so appreciative of people that work on stuff like this. Um, I believe the main work on this project was done by Loïc Petit, which I'm so sorry for my terrible pronunciation of your name. For whatever reason, French is very hard for me to pronounce. My apologies. <laughs> um, as well as a bunch of other awesome people from the scene that have been contributing to this stuff for a long period of time. So if you're a developer looking to do anything with the Capcom Play system, please check out uh, both the info on that specific chip as well as the entire project right on GitHub um, or GitLab, I believe. And, you know, it's, it's very cool to see all of this stuff happening and not only to see it happening, but to see the people involved share all this information with everybody. So thank you so much to Loic and everybody else involved. Uh, and hopefully I'll start to see this or we'll start to see this implemented in some very cool stuff going forward. A few PlayStation 2 demos were just found on a hard drive that was almost forgotten. I guess it was formatted and left in a box a few years ago, and then the person found it, ran it through some recovery software, and was able to get a few different games. Um, the list of games is pretty interesting. One of them is a demo of the game Snood for the PS2 that was never released previously. Um, another one is a game The Benefactor, which uh, I don't know much about that one. I don't think that ever ended up on the PS2. And there's also a version of Red Dead Revolver, which seems to be a pre-release version. Um, it definitely has a different title screen than what the original was or than what the one that ended up being public was. I'm not sure about any of the other differences. And uh, the game Future Tactics The Uprising... Um, the original version of that game was actually called Pillage, and it was supposedly in production for quite a long time, and then eventually got picked up by a different studio, renamed, and then released globally. And uh, I don't know the differences between the original version and the one that the public saw, but 
if you're interested in all that, all four of those are out there for you to check out. I used software emulation to just grab the title screens off of, off of each of the uh, released um, ISOs. And the same person also released a version of Superman 2000, which is essentially uh, Superman 64, but for the PlayStation. Um, I'm not sure the differences between the one that was just released and the one that was released two years ago. I had already covered that. Um, I think footage of it was shown two years ago and it took a little while then for the person who found it to release it to the public for whatever reason but uh i guess this is a more updated version um i I think the history of the game is kind of neat but it never seemed like a game i would enjoy playing so i'm not really sure but if you're interested in any of these check out all five of these links um and uh, i linked to the original posts as well but it doesn't really add any background info on any of it other than i believe where the games were purchased but uh, certainly nothing on the development, you know, nothing on the differences between them. So I guess if we're curious about that, it'll be up to us to figure it out. Before I go, I just wanted to address some rumors I'd been hearing about the Make Megahertz Xbox HDMI project. Um, I'd heard some pretty wild rumors going around, and I'd also heard some very level-headed concerns uh, from people that I know and I talk to on a regular basis. So I figured I would just let everybody know just for peace of mind. Um, Also, I don't have any affiliation with the developer. I haven't talked to them since the review was up, um, and I don't have any pre-existing relationship, which doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean good or bad. I'm just saying, like, this isn't a buddy that I could just text and ask what's up. Um, I, I have as much access to them as you do. But what I know... What I believe I know as facts, you know, what my friends that I trust have told me are that they missed their ship date and never emailed anybody and were terrible at communication, Um, you know, wouldn't respond to most emails, stuff like that, which which really sucks. It doesn't mean something's doesn't necessarily mean there's a problem. That just means there's a, a developer that's bad at customer service, you know, whatever. Uh, but I guess some people had had waited a couple of weeks and filed a PayPal dispute thinking, oh man, I don't want another back scenario. Let me just get my money back now and then deal with it another time. And then afterwards, tracking numbers were generated, but like a week went by and it still said label created. It looked like it never actually shipped, which is very concerning because that is the sign of a scam of sorts. Except um, I believe, I don't work for PayPal, I don't know anything about PayPal, but I'm pretty sure that you have 180 days to open up a dispute about something with PayPal. And as far as I know, these pre-orders went open in early September, and my video came out in late September. So I think that as far as I know, there's still plenty of time for anybody to get their money back. So while it sucks that there's bad communication, um, some people did say, at least in the past day or two, that their tracking numbers had changed from label created to in transit and they saw it uh, at different locations. So there was something moving. They hadn't gotten them yet. So who knows what's in the box? But I just, you know, there could be a problem here. There could be cause for concern, and the lack of communication and the way the shipping label thing was handled is definitely a red flag to for people to be wary of. But as far as I know, it's not panic time, not even remotely close. This could just end up being one of those things where a small developer missed their target date. I think it happens on 99% of projects these days, big and small, for reasons that maybe their fault or maybe nobody's fault. Who knows? But... I just, I don't know, and I don't think anybody else knows for sure, and I'd heard some pretty crazy rumors, which, you know, is, I guess, typical of the internet these days, 
but I wanted to try to keep a level head because even if everything went to crap and there's nothing you could do and they don't exist, whatever else, as far as I know, you could still get your money back. So it's not as big of a problem as you would expect. Um, you know, double check me on that. If you're concerned, call PayPal, you know, all you'll lose is time. If you pick up the phone and say, I think there might be a problem. What could I do if I don't get it? How long should I wait? You know, you tell me your PayPal, if you're concerned, definitely take the time to do that. But I would just wait another week or two. If people supposedly really are getting their tracking numbers updated to shipped and those arrive, even if they're shipping slowly, I mean, at the end of the day, you got your product. It's annoying. The communication thing's annoying. My Just my personal opinion, delays suck, but that's not my concern. Lack of communication is what makes people worried. So who knows? We'll see how that all goes. Um, I would like to, on a personal note, and you know, you could all just turn off the podcast if you don't want to hear me ramble after this. There's no more facts or anything, but uh, it's really important to me to remind everybody that I will never stop reviewing products that I think are cool. And I think for me to say, oh, well, uh, you know, these three people I've worked with before and have an existing products that people could buy, I'll only review those and not new people. I think that is the definition of gatekeeping, not the stupid way that the kids use it these days. Like the actual, like that is, you know, I am putting up a gate saying, if I don't know you and you're not part of our club, you can't come in. I think that's terrible. I've met so many people for the first time that no one's heard of that came up with these amazing products that turned out to be absolutely great. And some of them were even launched on time. So I'm never going to put up that wall to people. I could only just do my best to make sure that the product is real, which it is real. This one, there was a production quality piece of hardware and some serious software to uh, interact with that. I mean, it's a real thing. It does absolutely exist. That doesn't mean that doesn't mean that it's all going to end well. It just means that to the best of my knowledge, everything was as good as I could have checked beforehand. Um, you know, barring like hiring a private investigator to check out this person's business sense, like I, I would never do that. I think most people would never do that either. And also a lot of people love to go down the route of, you know, uh, what did you gain from all of this? And I'll be perfectly honest in that um, I was not paid. I, I And I have never been paid to do a review, by the way, but I was not paid to do a review. Uh, it was a free unit. However, I did say, which is the same thing I say to, to a lot of people I work with, maybe this is gatekeeping, but whatever. Um, I did say that I'm not really comfortable accepting free units like this in this scenario. So I'll do the review and then I'll pass it along to other people, either other reviewers, uh, which I always think is a great idea for everybody, saves the developers money on review units. Um, and the actual plan I had was to send it to somebody I know who was going to do uh, use it for a tournament and then have them send it on and so on and so forth. It is actually still sitting over there. So, you know, I, I just, uh, it, we no one ever got around to, to stepping up and doing the next step, but that is absolutely where the Xbox will be going. Um, and as far as an affiliate link, I did not have one on this, but I would have if one was available because I don't make any money doing reviews. I, the only thing I make out of it is hopefully getting exposure, having enough people see it and go, all right, this guy's doing okay. I'll throw him a dollar a month on his Patreon or five bucks in the float plane or whatever. Like that's, that's how I get paid for these reviews. So if there was an affiliate link available, I absolutely would have used it just to get a few extra dollars on top of the nothing that I get from YouTube. So, you know, I, I know people don't like when creators talk about this stuff and some people get offended by it, but I would always rather be transparent and have you be mad at me for things that I really did than 
then leave you know leave things open to interpretation which people still lie all the time about this stuff regardless of, of what's actually said so i could just do my best to give you the info as well as i know it but to summarize everything you know there are signs of concern but it's not even close to too late yet so i would recommend just keeping posted and i'll try to update within a week or two um i'm never going to stop reviewing products i like uh, and you know, I'm going to try my best to have as much responsibility for this as possible. And if there does turn out to be an, an actual serious issue, I'll take down the video. I'll update the post on the website with a warning and I'll put out a new video saying, here's what you do to get your money back. But I will not do that until proof has been shown that there is a serious issue until it comes cl- or until it comes closer to the time period where you can't get your money back. I feel like that's as reasonable a way as I could handle this as possible. Uh, I always listen to level-headed comments, though. So if you think I get any of this wrong, I, I will absolutely listen. Just remember, though, that I might not agree with you. I will listen, but it doesn't mean I'll immediately change my opinion. So hopefully this all works out for the best. I didn't mean to waste eight minutes of people's time, but uh, I'd rather just be honest and bore you to death than risk people losing money. Well, that's it for this time. As always, thanks so much to everybody that watches, listens, plays nicely in the comments, and especially everybody that supports on platforms like Floatplane and Patreon, because it's all of you that is keeping all of these things alive. So thank you all so much, and I'll see you next week. Thank <laughs> you.